Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is my opinion, and I'm going to seek my approval. Do I approve of me? Love doesn't have any expectations. It doesn't seek something in return. It gives because it wants to. At our core, all of us have these feelings of being unlovable and inadequate. And until we start to care for those parts of ourselves, we can't really have the outer successes that we long for. Does money buy you intuition, insight, creativity, higher vision, transcendence? No. Money does buy you pleasure, and pleasure is good, but it's not enough. We need fulfillment. Welcome to the Unwind Podcast, a show to help you pause, relax, reflect, and be curious. I'm your host, Poppy Jamie, a best selling author and entrepreneur exploring the human experience. I interview world leading thinkers, shaping ideas around the mind, health, spirituality, philosophy, and culture. I'm often reminded that thoughts become things, so we need to choose the good ones. I hope this show helps you to do that too. On this week's podcast, I'm interviewing John Levy, who is a behavioral scientist and New York Times bestselling author known for his work in trust, human connection, belonging, and influence. John specializes in applying the latest research on how humans behave and make decisions to transform the ways companies approach building brands, culture, and overall strategy. But more than a decade ago, John founded the Influencers Dinner, a secret dining experience that brought together industry leaders and actually encouraged them to make their own dinner. So they would arrive, be given the food, and they'd all have to work together to actually make the experience. It has had a phenomenal impact. And for the last few years, John has hosted thousands of some of the most brilliant brains in the world, brought them together to talk about how they can solve world problems. John's second book, You're Invited, The Art and Science of Connection, Trust and Belonging, was released in 2021, and it shared his secrets and observations of all the things that he's learned. Unsurprisingly, it became an instant New York Times bestseller. I met John recently in Sweden at a work conference and became fascinated by him, his work and just general perspective on the world. I wished we could have recorded our first conversation. So I was thrilled when he said yes to the podcast. I hope you enjoy this chat. Would you mind sharing a piece of writing or a quote that resonates with you? Oh, absolutely. I have probably read The Little Prince by Exuberi more times than any other book. And it's beautiful. Like it's just elegantly written and it's charming. And in it, he describes this idea that children play with toys and then they end up caring about them deeply. And he goes on to explain that whatever we waste our time on is what we love. As a behavioral scientist, I spend a lot of my time looking at how do we allow people to connect more deeply or trust each other more 
or develop more meaningful relationships. And this wisdom that's in this sentence of what we waste our time on is what we love is pretty profound. Uh, researchers looked at something called the IKEA effect that found that we care more about our IKEA furniture because we have to assemble it. And anything we put effort into, we care more about. What I love about the simplicity of what Exubre is saying is that no matter what we do, we're kind of just wasting some of our time. But we get to pick how we waste that time. Is it on video games? It might be really delightful for you. Or it could be taking walks with people or doing CrossFit classes or whatever it is. But whatever it is that we put our time towards is what we tend to love and care about. And so if we want to change our lives in some way, all we have to do is look at how can we waste our time differently. You wrote about the Acura effect in your book, and it was one of my favorite parts of the book, actually, mm. because you also go on to share a story. It's a past American president who was mm. looking to make a relationship. And I'd love for you to talk about that, because I think that what you've just shared, obviously, as you write, is very interesting when it comes to forming relationships. So uh, the story is about Ben Franklin, statesman. And his father gave him a piece of advice when he was young and said, a person who's done you a favor is more likely to do you another than somebody who's never done you a favor before. And that seems counterintuitive because for human beings, we're worried that if I keep asking you for stuff, you're going to resent me. It turns out it probably doesn't work like that. On the extremes, of course, like if you just, you're, you're a taker and taker and never give anything back, then people get annoyed. But in general, it works that if I ask you for something, then I become somebody worthy of effort and thereby worthy of more effort. And Franklin had this contentious political rival. Franklin was running for some political office. Uh, he had a very, very wealthy person who didn't like him very much, uh, who was willing to fund his opponent's campaign. And traditional strategy would suggest you know, should be really nice to this person, take them out to dinner, try to butter them up. And Franklin was like, forget that, that'll never work. Instead, what he did was he asked the wealthy man if he could borrow a very rare book that's quite valuable from the man's private library. And the man agreed and went out of his way to bring it to Franklin. And from that day forward, they became friends until the man passed away. And this kind of goes to show that Human beings work the opposite of the way they, we think they do. We think that we have to win people over with lavish meals and things like that. But really, it's this shared effort or an investment of effort that causes us to care about one another. And this obviously leads us beautifully into the concept that you created being the influencer dinner. Yes. It's so simple and yet it is so powerful. And I heard about these dinners way before I met you. And then when I suddenly put them together, I thought it was even more interesting given the conversation we then had. So for anyone who doesn't know, what are the infamous influencer dinners that you organize? Uh, so... 13 years ago, let me just start off with, I knew nobody, I was I don't know, 28, 29 years old. Nobody cared who I was. I had come across a bunch of research that blew my mind. It was about uh, the obesity epidemic. I'm not sure if you know this, but I'm American. Americans have a tendency to be overweight. And researchers were curious, does obesity spread from person to person like a cold? Or is it a percentage of the population like Alzheimer's? And what they found was startling. 
if you have a friend who's obese, your chances of obesity increase by about 45%. Your friends who do not know the person have a 20% increased chance, and their friends have a 5% increased chance. Now, this is mind-blowing. Happiness, marriage and divorce rates, smoking habits, voting habits, all these things pass through the same kind of process. Literally all human behavior, it looks like, is contagious. So I said, what if rather than spending my life beating myself up for not waking up at like six o'clock in the morning to do a crazy workout, what if I just had athletes as part of my social circle? Would I begin to exercise? Or I'm not really that great with my finances. What if I knew a bunch of wealthy individuals or uh, investment experts? And so I got curious what connects people. And I spent about a year kind of developing a model. And to prove it, I did the most absurd thing a human being can do. I invite people to my home. They cook me dinner. They wash my dishes. They clean my floors. And oddly, they actually thank me for it. And before I sound like a complete lunatic who like invites people over and kind of like steals their kidneys or something, I should probably explain what actually happens. 12 people are invited. They're not allowed to talk about what they do or give their last name. So it's completely anonymous. Then we cook a really simple and often terrible meal together. I mean, the food's just awful. <laughs> and, and when we sit down to eat, the guests get to play a game to try to guess what the people around the table do. And that's when they find out they're sitting with astronauts and Olympians and Nobel laureates and editors-in-chief of celebrities. And we've even had the prime minister of Belgium and you know, princesses and all that kind of stuff. And so we've hosted over, I don't know, 3,300 people at 314 dinners in 11 cities in four countries, including the UK. And uh, it's grown into probably the largest community of its kind in the world. And it's been quite the privilege. When I was reading the extent of these dinners, I mean, to host, mm -hmm. as you just said, you know, over 3,000 people at these dinners, you have met an awful lot of people. And you have proportionally met far more of the most successful people in the world compared to your average person. Mm -hmm. And you are also a behavioral scientist. So what surprises you most about success that maybe you wouldn't have assumed had you not mm. spent that much time or that many inverted commas conventionally successful people? So I think one of the biggest things I, I realized, and I really, really didn't expect this, just to caveat this, I grew up a really lonely kid. I was a geeky science nerd who loved computers and video games back in the 80s. And that wasn't cool. It wasn't cool to like technology till like the iPhone came out. Then you could be like a tech billionaire and, you know. So I never really found my people. And what really surprised me is after hosting all these people is that no matter how successful you are, people don't feel like they fit in. So an Olympian knows that you're probably talking to them because they won a match by one one hundredth of a second during a swim meet. And that the next Olympics, they may not make it and people won't care anymore. The CEO knows that quarterly earnings are good right now, but in two quarters, if things are bad, then they're out and nobody's going to take their calls. And the Nobel laureate knows it was one lucky day in a lab or that they got the right you know, advisor for their PhD 
And if they would have gone into any other area of research, nobody would know their name. And so it really demonstrates to me that no matter how successful a person is, we're all kind of looking for our place. We're all looking to connect and feel loved and appreciated. And I don't think that most incredibly successful people in our culture feel that way because our culture isn't set up right now to give people a sense of belonging. It's mostly designed around status. I mean, my heart just breaks hearing that because it is just so true. I mean, I relate, yeah. every single person I know relates, and no one is allowed to feel settled in some way. What do you think it is about our culture? And even though it's making everybody deeply unhappy, why does it remain this culture that supports status over belonging? And what do you think needs to change and how does it change? So there's a few things that I think we need to kind of look at. Research showed that, and I'll, I'll point to American research just because I don't have all the data on the UK, but it seems very consistent in both places. So the first thing is that people's sense of connection kind of peaked at about 1950, right after World War II. When the television entered the home around 1950, uh, we begin to see a degradation in social bonds. So like, you don't need to go out to your bowling league where you connect with people when there's a television at home. And the post-war sentiment that rallied us all together kind of dissipated. By 1985, the average American had about three friends. By 2004, less than a generation, 19 years later, we were down to just about two, and now it's even lower. Now, for those averages to exist, there has to be a lot of people at zero. So the question now becomes why? There's a lot of factors that go into this. The first is we've promoted this ideal of going away for college and going away for work. And every time you travel and move, you reset your social connections, right? As nice as it is that we can still now text with people or call or FaceTime, we tend to hold really strong social ties with those that are in our vicinity. And it's really hard as an adult to create new social bonds. The second factor is that around the 1980s, we begin to see the rise of helicopter parenting. Maybe it's closer to the 90s. So parents went from letting their kids go at the age of seven to buy milk at the corner to now the greatest distance they can travel is the next room over without being GPSed. And as a byproduct, when they're helicopter parented, uh, the kids don't need to develop their own social skills. So we have weaker social skills and we have people who are constantly moving for work or school. And the more transient a population, the weaker our social ties become. And when we say, oh, it's a really great job, it's okay to leave your family, then we find ourselves in situations where people who want to have kids don't have a support structure anymore to have kids. So now we also see, besides the decline in fertility and all these other issues and pushing our, our birthing ages later so that people can have more careers, we're seeing that People have no support structures to have kids. So in general, we're facing a collection of problems, status from work, helicopter parenting, weak social skills or essential skills, and also this prioritization of 
career, which is really important, right? To feel a sense of accomplishment instead of social bonds, which we've actually proven is the great predictor of human longevity, satisfaction in life, happiness, and all that. So it's just a tough problem. I think that we are in a crisis of mating for that reason as well, because how do you meet someone if no one is given the confidence to go meet new people? What do you think needs to happen in order for this to change? Because, you know, as you quite rightly just said, and I think that this was published a few months ago, you know, this idea that America and especially also Europe were in a friendship recession. I think men actually have even fewer friends than women, um, which obviously oh, kind of sure. makes sense. But how do we change it? And, you know, I, I do say this, that your book has definitely got a number of tools within it to help people. But on a collective level, what do you think we need to do? I think the first thing we need to do is put it in a primary education curriculum because it, parents are not capable of being responsible for these things. Not because parents aren't wonderful. It's just they're already overtaxed and they're completely exhausted and it's easier to helicopter at times than it is to see your child fall. And so we need to take it out of the parents' hands. The second is we need to do some really good research on the different ways in which men and women connect. So traditionally, women are the social hub of a heterosexual relationship. And as a byproduct, if people are getting married less frequently or not getting married or having a tough time meeting, then it suggests that there's just going to be less connections for the men. Mm. Men bond differently than women do. If you look at the traditional models, now they might be thrown out the window with this next generation as people's behaviors have been changing and shifting. I don't know. But if we look at traditional research, men tend to do things around each other, whereas women tend to do things together. Mm. So you know, you think of the classic men go hunt, they're quietly sitting in different places around each other. Men go work in a woodshed, one's working at one station, another is working at another. Whereas women who get together for like brunch or something like that, it tends to be more a sharing of social information. I don't want to refer to it as like gossip because there's more to it than that, but it ensures social bonds are taking place and trust is built. So it's just a different structure. So I think we need a whole bunch of research. And the second is we really, really need to get people used to getting beat up a little. Mm. And what I mean by that is that our social skills are what's called anti-fragile. So things that are fragile, if we drop them or hit them, they'll break, like a champagne glass. Things that are anti-fragile get stronger when they get beat up within a range. So if I lift weights, I'm straining and beating up my muscles but they grow back stronger. The same is true for social skills. So as we develop our social skills, we need to get used to being beat up a little. We need to get used to saying something and having it land as awkward and learning the lesson and feeling bad about it. It's okay that we regret stuff. It's okay that we learn those lessons. It's okay that cringe things happen. It's part of our development process because human beings are fundamentally awkward. And so I've spent more time cringing and being uncomfortable than almost any person I know because I keep putting myself out there. I, I remember a few days ago, I go, 
oh, you know, several times a day, I think back to the cringiest <laughs> things I do. And my wife goes, what are you talking about? I'm like, wait, that doesn't happen to you that like you review all these things through the past like few weeks or years even. And she's like, I literally have no idea what you're talking about. And I realized, oh, she's a massive introvert that doesn't really do stuff as much. And I'm there out every day, like embarrassing myself half the time. So it's okay. And we need to get be willing to be beaten up a little so we get stronger. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I think we have this illusion that everybody else knows how to perfectly socialize and perfectly make friends. And actually, as you just said, humans are really awkward. Like inherently, we are just so clumsy, so awkward. But if that was understood to be more of the norm that like everyone's an awkward socializer, I think we would less individualize ourselves as the awkward one. Yeah, I'm, I'm in full agreement. I'm willing to bet that most of the times you said something that you think went bad or was awkward, the other person was so self-conscious about themselves that they didn't even notice. Let's ignore like teenagers. Teenagers are the worst. I say that because when I was a teenager, I was the worst. Like teenagers are trying to figure themselves out. They're full of hormones. And when you look back at our like most cringiest moments, it's probably a lot of them were around then or like when we first entered the workforce, right? Still confused about social etiquette. But I really think that this is where the magic happens because uh, there's this fantastic study. It was so funny. It's called the spotlight effect. Researchers had students come into a laboratory, probably college students, and uh, they said, hey, we're doing an experiment on team building. But they had one person from each group come in early and put on a T-shirt that they were given. And at the time, researchers tried to figure out what would be the most embarrassing T-shirt the person could wear. And it was a musician by the name of Barry Manilow was what won. And then they went in, they all participated. And then when they came out, the person wearing the Barry Manilow t-shirt was asked, how many people do you think noticed you were wearing this kind of embarrassing t-shirt? And they're like, oh my God, probably everybody. I don't know, at least half. And then they actually polled people. And I think it was like a quarter of people even noticed, and I doubt anybody actually cared. Then they had repeated the exercise with people wearing cool t-shirts. So at the time it was Seinfeld, and Biggie Smalls. And once again, they're like, oh yeah, I bet everybody loved my t-shirt and only 
25% noticed or whatever it was. And once again, I doubt anybody cared. The spotlight effect is that we think way more people give a damn about us than do. Most people are far too self-conscious to notice anything going on with you. Not because they wouldn't care about you if they got to know you better, but because we're all really self-conscious. I think that the, the key here is that nobody really cares when we're being awkward as much as we think they do. I'm sure some do, but there's something called loss aversion, which is that human beings experience more pain from losing something than they do pleasure from gaining it. So if I find $100, I get a certain amount of joy. But if I lose $100, on average, I'm feeling twice as much pain. And so we remember the losses far more than we remember the gains. And we become very careful not to embarrass ourselves, even though those embarrassments aren't real. And so it's kind of just the mechanics of human beings and why we need to toughen ourselves up a bit. This reminds me of something that you wrote, which says, humans cannot process the duration of pleasure and pain. We mm. only remember the peaks. Yeah. And I thought this was really interesting because you gave an example of someone on a date and they've had this incredible date with someone and they're going for the kiss and then somebody says something really awkward and they leave going, oh my God, that was the worst date ever. When actually, if you looked at time, they had three hours of a great date. It was five yeah. seconds of a bad date. So why is this important to be aware of, especially in terms of how we evaluate experiences and relationships? So there's a couple of ways we can use this information. And it's used all over the place. It's called the peak end rule. So one for me, when I'm in social situations, especially when I'm like muscle building, right? Early, my early years, it was really important for me to end on a win. So like make sure that the last conversation of the event or the evening was like really positive and then calling it. And the reason is that way, what lingers or in the memory from it is really positive. And I'm thereby more likely to do it again in the future. The second is that when we're having social interactions, we want to end on a positive note. So like a lot of events or experiences tend to deteriorate into nothingness. You know, I can't tell you the number of times I went out in my like 20s and 30s and was at a pizza place at three o'clock in the morning wondering what I'm doing at this pizza place at three o'clock in the morning, right? Like I just should have gone home earlier. So you can see like, my peaks were probably great throughout the night, but because I ended up there being like, I don't really want to be eating this. I don't know what I'm still doing out. Then I actually remember the experience is less positive and I'm less likely to engage in social activities in the future. Now, that doesn't mean that you need to like freak out every time something is ending, that it has to be the awesomest ending in the world. I just mean that like when you do say goodbye to people, make sure it's really pleasant. You know, there's a phrase, at least in the US, that left a bad taste in my mouth, right? Because that, that's what lingers. And so when I'm designing events or when I'm planning an experience or leaving my Uber and I want to make sure I get a good rating, I do something very positive at the end. It's a really great technique because especially if you're tired, because I think one of the things that is the enemy of community and friendship and connection at the moment is the fact that everybody's exhausted. And, you know, and to create a great connection with someone, you kind of need energy, right? You kind of need to be curious. And I think this links actually to one of your first points, which is we don't teach people how to make friends. We just kind of assume we know 
how to do it. Yeah. And I find it amazing how many people I meet will, who will never ask me a question. They'll never just say anything, even what's your favorite color. I don't even expect them to say, what do you do? But just there's no curiosity at all. And I find it really difficult to build a relationship when there is, I'm asking so many questions and there's absolutely nothing back. I guess I'm trying to ask you about seven questions and one question. So maybe I'll start with the, mm-hmm. with the first comment, which is, What's your pieces of advice or if you were designing a class to educate people on how to make better connections, what would be some of your first pieces of advice? The first thing I'd want people to realize is that they could feel affinity for just about anybody. Ooh, I've heard of cases of former German soldiers becoming friends with Jews that survived the Holocaust. The limits and boundaries have nothing to do with what we think today are acceptable and not. Nowadays, we look at political lines as, you know, I could never date somebody who voted for this person or that person or who got vaccinated or whatever. Like, we go back 200 years, the real divide between people was like, do I believe that we should be part of a monarchy that was divinely placed by God? Or do we believe that people should be able to vote for those who are our leaders. Nowadays, we agree on almost all of everything. It's like the nuances that we're fighting about. So I think the first thing is affinity can be found between almost any two people. What tends to create affinity is common ground. So if I see a version of myself with you, so Poppy, you're incredibly inquisitive. You love science. Me too. Like we have this common ground, right? We both went to the same conference, common ground. We maybe had an experience like, you know, I do my dinners. When there is no obvious common ground, you just can create it by doing something together. So you do a cooking class or an art class or you go on a run together. And that in itself creates the common ground. I want to also separate having affinity for somebody is different than being in love with them or wanting to be their best friend and all that, right? Affinity really matters because it allows you to feel a sense of community. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that belonging and community and all of these kind of social things require continuous effort. It's like Mm. having a, a dog, right? You need to walk it, feed it, all that. This expectation that just because somebody says they're your friend means that they should still continue to feel that way in 10 years is unrealistic. And so if you want to lead a healthy life, and I actually mean healthy, Like when you look at the great predictors of what causes human longevity, number two is close friends and family. And number one is something called social integration. It's the number of people you come in contact with. And then the next thing I would say is that you have to be willing to build the muscle. And building the muscle means being vulnerable. And that is an uncomfortable word in our society right now. So it turns out that the base unit of trust is something called a vulnerability loop. People think that if I look perfect, if I got my stuff together, you will trust me and like me. Have you ever met one of those people that like looks absolutely perfect all the time? How does that actually make you feel? So deeply inadequate. (laughs) Yeah, right? Like, I'm like, holy cow, how are they doing that? I'm barely like managing to like shower, put on clean clothing and get my work done. And in the meantime, they look like they're ready for, you know, a royal banquet. 
all the time. It doesn't make us feel comfortable. So it turns out that the base unit of trust is this thing called a vulnerability loop. Person one signals vulnerability. I might say, Poppy, I'm kind of freaking out. Just became a dad. I'd never changed a diaper. I don't really know what I'm doing. In that moment, I've signaled vulnerability. If you make fun of me, then trust will be reduced. But if you acknowledge it and say, John, I know how you feel. I've been thrown into the thick of a whole bunch of stuff I've never done before. And I'm, I know the feeling. Uh, what are you dealing with? The moment that I see that you've signaled vulnerability at the same level by saying that you're going through something similar, and I see that we've signaled it to the same degree, I know we're safe and trust increases to that higher level. So person one signals, person two acknowledges, person two signals, person one acknowledges, trust increases. That is the base unit of trust. It's called a vulnerability loop. And it comes in every form imaginable. Hey, can you pass me the, and before I finish the sentence, you're passing me a pen. That's a vulnerability Mm. loop. Poppy, can I ask your advice? That's a vulnerability loop. And you'll notice if you complete that loop and give me that advice, then the Ikea effect kicks in. So not only have we increased trust, but your investment of effort causes you to care more about me. And so this is how relationships are formed. The basis of relationships is actually vulnerability. In our society, we've been kind of taught that vulnerabilities are bad, when really it's the reason that we function as a society. There's, in fact, a research body of research around something called the Pratt-Fall effect. Have you ever heard of this thing? It's so funny. No, 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 no. Interested. Okay. Have you ever seen a rom-com? I mean, have I seen a rom-com? Yes. I gobble them up for breakfast, lunch, dinner. Perfect. You'll notice that the lead character of a rom-com is kind of always falling all over themselves, right? The Hugh Grant character or Zoe Deschanel. Mm. And we think that if we look imperfect or we mess up, people will dislike us or won't trust us. But it turns out that the opposite is actually true. Researchers had people go in for job interviews and either deliver a perfect interview or deliver the same interview and then drop some papers and spill some coffee. What they found is that the people who spilled and dropped actually ranked higher than those that delivered a perfect interview. And that's because when you demonstrate vulnerability without damaging your competence, people actually like you more. That's why we love the characters in rom-coms. Now, in rom-coms, it's to an extreme. Like if you actually ever had to live with the new girl, Jess from the new girl, you'd go crazy, right? Like that person is manic. But it goes to show that the things that make us a little ridiculous are actually the things that cause people to care about us and like us. Oh, I love this so much, mainly because everything often goes wrong for me. So this just gives me so much reassurance that it's actually okay. I'm so thrilled about this scientifically backed research that shows mistakes are actually helpful. You know, Mm -hmm. these kind of lovable mistakes can actually support our evolution, our likability. And I think that it's so funny because it goes totally against what Instagram suggests. I feel that... Mm -hmm. One of the reasons dating apps, a lot of people aren't having success with dating apps in their current form, and I know they're changing, which is exciting. I think it's this idea that we've got to present a very perfect self. And if we're not 
having a lot of success in the dating world, it's because we're not perfect enough. I feel like I, I hear that a lot from people I speak mm. to at the moment. There's kind of two schools of thought on this, at least. So I did probably the largest study in history on dating. It was 421 million potential matches between people and asked what actually causes them to date. This isn't who gets married or who ends up in a relationship. It's who sets up a date. And in general, we want to date a slightly different version of ourselves. So down to your initials, if you have the same initials, you're 11.3% more likely to date. That's wild. Now, here's the, the funny thing about this. Let's say you were to take a walk in a local park. I don't know what the names of the parks in London are, but Central Park in New York. You would probably pass several hundred people during that time. It would surprise me if in that time you would find somebody who is attractive to you that you'd start a conversation with. But if you swipe for about 200 people on a dating app, you're going to end up on a date, give or take. Which means that the fact that you can go through 200 people so quickly in your target group and actually end up going on a date with somebody is pretty incredible. So I would say that dating apps have an incredible level of success. Could they be better? Sure. But what actually gets people to marry or long-term relationships is incredibly unpredictable. And more importantly, has changed so much in the past 70 years. In the 19, I think, 30s, 40s, it was more important that the person, if you would ask women about men, what's important, they would say things like person of honesty and integrity. Love was like fifth on the list. Now, love is first. So our values have fundamentally shifted as a culture and our expectations. So I would say that as we go up Maslow's higher order of needs, right? We go from like, oh, can this person provide enough so that if we have children, they're not starving, which was a sign of a good marriage, right? And nobody's beating on anybody. <laughs> then great, it was a successful marriage 150, 200 years ago. Then we went to higher levels of Maslow's order of needs. And now we expect self-actualization that like, our partner will help us grow forever and will make us new people so that we achieve our greatest potential. And they have to be eternally attractive and they have to be great in bed and so on and so forth forever. And that's not necessarily realistic, right? It's just one relationship and we're putting a lot of pressure on it. Not that I'm saying you shouldn't find the relationship of your dreams, but research by Oh, it was The All or Nothing Marriage was the name of the book. And it was by Eli Finkel. He found that marriages now are less happy than they've been in decades, except for a very, very small percentage that are happier than they've ever been because they've been able to scale to that top of Maslow's higher order of needs. And so I think the issue is that what defines our, our kind of satisfaction with things is often expectations. And if our expectations are based on Instagram reels, mm -hmm. you're mm -hmm. going to be in trouble, which is why people who participate in social media tend to be less happy. It's one of the reasons that I general policy is I don't want fans, I want friends, and I don't participate. Does that mean that I'm going to be less financially successful? Probably because I'm not building an audience, but I make a conscious effort to try to do the things that 
kind of the research shows are healthy for us. Wow. Just wow. I think that is such an interesting point to reflect on. The fact that 60, 70 years ago, love was for and kind of, you know, trust and loyalty was, you know, higher than that. And I think that maybe our understanding of love, like our understanding of what friendship and community is, has somewhat got mixed up in in the ever-changing world that we live in. And this really just links me back to how powerful your book is in disseminating this information about how do humans work? Because one thing is for sure, when you understand how humans work, it's much easier to have relationships with them because it feels less personal in some ways. Like the rejection feels less personal. As you said, like the embarrassment feels less personal. And that's what I really felt. I felt this air of confidence after reading. Mm. What was your intention? I mean, I know it was a couple of years ago when the book came out, but obviously, you know, it's still being circulated far and wide. What has been some of the surprising feedback you've had from it? The feedback that I think surprised me the most was how many people in the entertainment industry used my book. Mm. So people who are trying to popularize shows or, you know, when you produce a film or TV show, it's a very intense period where everybody's together and then they just disband and go work on their next project. And so a famous showrunner, which are the people that like the CEO of a TV show, let's call it or whatever, said, oh, wow, I use this stuff all the time. And I think one of the most surprising things for me was I was at an event and uh, have you ever seen the show, How I Met Your Mother? Yes. Okay. So one of the stars, the female lead, Kobe Schmulders was at the event and I was like, oh my God, I watched that entire show. I think she's the coolest. She's in the Marvel movies. And I wanted to talk to her and a showrunner who had read my book said, oh, Kobe, this is my friend, John. And she goes, wow, your voice sounds so familiar. And she looks at me, I'm like, yeah, I'm an author. I wrote a popular book. And you know, when somebody suddenly realizes that they know you. (laughs) And so she's like, oh my God, I listened to your book. I loved it. And I look at her and I'm like, oh my God, I've watched your shows and your stuff. I love like, it was this moment of totally fanning. And I never expected that like a Hollywood actress that's well-known would fan girl about me and my book. And that's probably the most unexpected and most delightful thing that could have happened out of this book. You know, I I never imagined that it would enter that realm because it's like such a personal and like maybe business book. As you write in your book, you had a moment of awe and um, and every, everybody can find out what that means um, when you read it. But to bring this conversation back to you, what life lesson have you been reminded of recently and why? There's a, a famous behavioral psychologist, I know Dan Kahneman, who won the Nobel Prize. And he said, nothing is ever as important to you as what you're staring at right now. Meaning that like we put such a disproportionate amount of value and importance to like whatever it is that we're dealing with in our life at this moment. And really these things tend to be relatively small. I was trying to help a family member buy an apartment and it was just like this most grueling thing and it all fell through. And I was like, oh my God, it's all over. Like, you know, I was in a doom spiral and somebody talked to me and he's like, aren't there like 40 other apartments that are similar to it in the neighborhood? Why don't you like, just go check out a few more. It's fine. <laughs> but I was like in this doom spiral of like, I'd invested so much effort. It costs so much money. Like, 
And so I, I think that, that that's kind of the big lesson that I'm, I'm dealing with right now is that like, no matter how important what I'm looking at right now is, it really isn't such a big deal. Things tend to work out for the most part. Sometimes, don't get me wrong, it can be a really big deal if somebody's sick and things like that. But most of the stuff that I'm stressing about is really not stress worthy. Like, I'm going to be able to eat tomorrow regardless if I close that next deal. If my kid pukes on me and I have a stain on my shirt, it's okay. Like, <laughs> most of the people are my clients understand they have kids and we'll work through it. It's fine. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Where is the best place for people to find you? Of course, we'll put links to your book in the show notes. But so my easiest place is johnlevy.com, J-O-N-L-E-V-Y, no H. I'm also on Instagram and Twitter, which is now called X. I guess I'm dating myself based on when this episode comes out. Uh, you can reach out to me on, on Instagram if you want. I try to check that like once a month in case so I don't miss messages. But I answer almost every email that comes in. And there's a form on my website. So feel free to be in touch. Or pick up a copy of the book or 10 for your friends. Uh, and pretty easy to get a hold of. So feel free. Amazing. Thank you so much. Poppy, thank you so much for having me on. This was absolutely delightful. Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed today, please hit subscribe and leave a comment because this helps the podcast so much. I'd be endlessly grateful if you wouldn't mind doing so. My mental health book, Happy Not Perfect, is available to order now. The book teaches you how to be a flexible thinker, a skill that helps you navigate any challenge that might come your way, helps you manage emotions, and helps you thrive to be the bendiest version of yourself. Until next time, I love hearing from you, so do shoot me a message on Instagram, send me a DM with any of your thoughts. Stay safe and well. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.